Somatic work helps us address what's happening in the body. We know that emotions are energy. It is very adaptable to be hypervigilant when you're in a situation of abuse. Why? Because that hypervigilance will help you be safe. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. Abuse is abuse. If something is painful, sometimes the safest thing for the body to do is dissociate. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. Okay, today's guest is two-time reigning champion on this show, Yolanda Renteria. She's a psychotherapist, and through her therapy practice, trauma workshops, and an Instagram that's over 220,000 followers strong, she's getting the word out about how to process trauma and break the cycles that can lead parents to pass their trauma onto the next generation. And the last time that we did this episode, I got so many messages from all of you on how powerful and impactful that episode was. So I had to have Yolanda back on the show. So Yolanda, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to I'm, I'm excited to be having this conversation. I know. Li- literally, I have had so many people that reached out to me after that episode with how much it resonated from, you know, people that had parents who were immigrants to children who had generational trauma that are like, I don't want to pass this on to my kids. One thing about you that I love is that, you know, this really hits home for you. This is something that's so meaningful for you. If you had to define your mission and why it mattered, how would you do that? I think my mission has changed over time. I think right now my mission has become really clear. It used to be at some point breaking generational patterns of trauma. And now I'm so focused on that, but doing it through building connection, authentic emotional connection while healing from those past wounds. I love that. And for those that have, that didn't get a chance to listen to the first episode. What do I need to understand about you and the context of your background and your upbringing to understand why you got into this work and who the woman is that I'm looking at today? Yes. I think I've always been curious about people's behaviors in general. I feel like since a young age, I had a good understanding that everyone's experience was different. And I was so intrigued by that. And I think the pieces were coming together. Of course, I didn't have parents who had an education. I don't have a background of people supporting my education. I had to figure a lot of things out on my own. But along the way, I discovered that everyone's experience is different. We all respond in different ways. And that started to become very clear for me of what can we do? so that we have a better understanding of ourselves and other people and the way that we're just all here in this planet trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in in Mexico or your parents are from Mexico, correct? How did that impact just being a daughter of immigrant parents and seeing that type of transition? How did that impact you to becoming a therapist? Do you feel like that had influence on how you navigate your own practice? Yes. So 
I am I'm an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 11. And honestly, I, I feel like I've always been that child who asks questions and want, wants to know more. But I didn't really have any type of support growing up uh, in the emotional and, and, and in a way that I was able to make sense of things. I had to figure a lot of things on my own. When we came to this country, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she doesn't really have a lot of resources about emotional connection, about relationships, about what to do, right? And my dad was was gone a lot for work. So, I mean, I love my parents. I have a strong connection with them. They both have different paths, but I feel like mine is very different than their paths. And I feel most of my path has been created just out of curiosity. And I did have a lot of space to explore that. That was something that I did have growing up. So when I encountered with friends and with classes and things like that, I was just really curious about it. And my parents did, you know, allow me to just have that space to be curious. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's, let's dive into the trauma piece. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about the body and the nervous system. I love to get different takes on this because I feel like the nervous system is a hot topic right now. If you're following any therapist or any healer or anybody who's involved in this type of work on Instagram or TikTok, chances are you have heard the words nervous system at some point. So let's, how do we break that down? What happens to the body and the nervous system when we go through trauma? You know, I... I think the most important thing is what doesn't happen. Okay. All of us have a nervous system and it runs from our brain to our toes and our, you know, the tip of our fingers. And if you've seen a picture of a nervous system online, you will see how incredible it really is. And that nervous system, it has a lot of, or carries a lot of energy, right? So whenever we're feeling an emotion, you will see that energy traveling in our body whether it's excitement or sadness or or anger, there's movement in your body. That's your nervous system at work. When we're young, our nervous system is encoding memories and it's assigning value to those memories. Is this safe? Is this is, is this isn't safe, right? And what it's also doing is that it's resourcing. Resourcing is when the body learns to have internal ways of processing what's in what's happening internally. So for for example, if as children we're upset, we're angry, and we don't have internal resources, but you'll see is just an explosion, a tantrum, right? When a when a parent comes, a caregiver comes, they can help us resource by helping by helping us understand what's happening and providing things that can help us regulate in that moment. Whether that is just like, you know what, it's okay. This is happening, just let it out. Or it might be, you know what, this this is happening right now and I understand you're upset and I don't like it either. Whatever that is, it is giving that child a message about their experience and what to do with their experience. Those are resources. 
when people experience a lot of trauma, they might be put in a lot of situations where they don't have any internal resources. So their nervous system is constantly on fire because it's experiencing things that it doesn't know what to do with because it didn't build any internal resources. So what we see with adults who have a really dysregulated nervous system is that lack of resources, the absence of resources, a lot of emotions, a lot of energy, and no resources to to feel safe or to come back to baseline. So I'm a firm believer that trauma can stay stored in the body because energy likes to move. It does not like to stay stagnant. So when we, we hear these terms, somatic work, somatic practices, and to people like me and you, you know, we're kind of aware of it, but to somebody that's listening, they may not really truly understand that. But let's start with how trauma shows up in the body. What may that look like with somebody? So let's say I know nothing about, this is the first time I'm hearing about the nervous system, somatic work. How can I recognize when I might be storing trauma in the body or how can it show up in my body? What does that feel like? Yes. Protective responses that are automatic and unexplained. We react very differently or very out of place for what's taking place. So, for example, someone might say something, might do something. You might be exposed to something that it's not supposed to be causing that much internal instability, but it does. That's one of the main signs when we're looking at trauma. Okay. So let's break that down. Maybe let's give an example of what that can look like. So let's say, let's say that I am dating Harry and Harry doesn't call me for, I don't know, he doesn't return my texts in within six hours and I start feeling a certain type of way. What may that look like if I have maybe trauma with my parents or some anxious attachment, how may that present in a situation like that where I'm starting to feel a certain way? What might that start feeling like in the body? And how can I recognize that this might be a trauma response versus am I really feeling anxiety because of what is being what is being done in this potential relationship or with my partner? How do we differentiate that? What does that look like? Yes. That's an excellent question, and it is a really difficult one to Mm -hmm. break through anytime we're experiencing those responses. And I want to let people know that it's okay to experience confusion. But one of the ways that we can tell is by the history that we have with this specific person. Does the history that I have with this specific person match what I feel about them? Or is most of what I am feeling based on the internal dialogue and interpretations I have assigned to it, right? I have a really good exercise that I like to to do with, with my clients, which is like, on one hand, you put the things that that happened, that actually happened and that people said. And on the other hand, you put your interpretation of what happened. And that's a really good way to find out what did this person say or do? And what was the meaning I gave to it? If our, if the meaning that we're giving to it is really out of place with what happened, then we're looking at a trauma response, right? But if we, if what the person is doing is consistent with our interpretation of what happened, then we can see that we're, we're reacting 
to what is happening and not something that's being triggered. Let's talk a little bit about somatic work then. So when we're talking about how trauma can be in the body, how it can show up in different ways, what is somatic work and how can that be helpful when we're dealing with trauma and triggers from our past? When people go to talk therapy, which is really, really helpful, we figure things out logically, right? And a lot of the times that's enough for us to create change. When we're talking about trauma, we've known that that is not the most helpful over time. And it's not that it's not helpful ever, but we'll end up feeling like logically, I know this is true, but I am stuck. I'm not going anywhere. I don't feel like I'm changing or I may know logically that this is true, but I don't feel it in in my body. And that's when somatic work comes in. Somatic work helps us address what's happening in the body. We know that emotions are energy in motion and energy is felt in the body. So anytime we have an emotion, we have, we feel it in the body. We don't feel it in our conscious mind. And a lot of the times we don't add this part into the work and what we do in somatic work is help bridge the mind that the brain and the body to create this connection right the mind connection where it can interpret both what's happening in our our thoughts and also what's happening in our body somatic work helps us get those experiences that haven't been processed that don't make sense or that maybe we've normalized And it puts us through the process of really finding out how we feel about them and coming up with automatic, this is not a logical process that we engage in. We just trust that the body gives us what is meant to give us in a somatic session and it's processing our experiences from a different lens, from a felt sense, not a logical lens. So I think when I first was listening to somatic work, when I was first starting out in the field, my interpretation of somatic work was, oh, that's just like some type of meditation. So how is that different from just sitting down, trying to meditate and trying to connect with your body? And what are some maybe tools or processes that someone can do if they're just starting out on their own? And when do they know? I know this is a loaded question. And when do they know when should I go see a therapist? So how can they do this on their own? How is it different? And when do they go see a therapist? Meditation, mindfulness exercises are really helpful because they make us be more aware of things. How is it different from a somatic session? In a somatic session, you have someone with the, with you who's guiding the process and they're trained to look at the things that are out, out of your awareness. For example, you might do things While you're thinking about something that you're not aware of, you might say things that as you say them, you you don't really stay with them. And when you have a somatic uh, therapist, what they do is help you notice those things with awareness and they're guiding the process, right? They're asking you, what do you notice happens when this happens? What do you notice happening in your body? What do you notice 
do you notice any connections or memories coming up? And a lot of the times things will just come organically. It's like when, when you connect someone to their body, the next thing you do is just trust that their body will take them wherever it needs to go. But setting up the stage for that process to happen is what's important. And once it happens, then the person will suddenly start making connections on their own. And then during that process, the, the coach or therapist will help guide the process so that the person knows what to do with the information and also provide resourcing. A lot of the times, especially in trauma cases, people don't have resources. So when they're processing, even when they're meditating, they might feel real uncomfortable doing it because it feels very chaotic and they don't like to be in their body. So in those somatic sessions, what we do is provide that grounding, grounding, just um, resourcing the body so that the person knows that it can come back to baseline. When people process trauma, the main thing with trauma is that the body never finds a place of safety. And what we do in somatic sessions is help the person find that place of safety, but not only logical, because we might know logically that we're safe, but it's that felt sense of safety. And I don't think that a lot of people are aware that a lot of that lack of sense of safety is what what's happening and being triggered again and again. When we're looking at relationships, for example, it doesn't like relationships don't feel safe. I can't trust people. The world doesn't feel like a safe place. I can't trust other people. I can't trust myself. I feel so indecisive and I'm full, full of self-doubt, right? I don't feel like I'm a safe person for me or other people. And that's what we do in the somatic session is get whatever the person is coming with, setting the stage or the, the yeah, the, the, the foundation for the session, allowing the body to do the connections that it needs to do and guiding the process and giving the person in that moment what they need. How can the person do this on their own? There are ways to do it. And there's books that include examples of that. For example, there's an exercise. I'll give a book recommendation. Uh, EMDR, Getting Past Your Paths by Francine Shapiro has an exercise there where it asks you to point out something that in the moment is not working for you. and Think about memories of where you might have felt similar in the past. And it walks you through the exercise and you'll come up with a core memory. And you can journal or you can just sit with that and just notice what happens in your body. And Francine also gives tools for that as you sit with that experience. That can be the closest thing that we have to processing of course, different modalities have different ways to do things on your own. Like EMDR would be the eye movement, brain spotting would be maybe looking at a certain spot and just processing from there, just like staying with that, noticing how things feel internally. I would not recommend a person with trauma or with, you know, with a lot of history of trauma does this because it can be really dysregulating because they don't have the resources. The nervous system doesn't have the resources. So those experiences, instead of helpful, can be traumatic. Yeah, and bring up things that are maybe 
we, we tend to put band-aids on things consciously or unconsciously because naturally we don't want to feel discomfort. So I, I totally agree because so many people with trauma avoid because we don't want to feel the discomfort that comes up. And a lot of times when you start doing trauma work, um, I always tell people you are going to feel discomforting, but that's why it's so important. The key thing that you said was to be able to have those um, outsourcing and those resources to support when you're going through this healing process. And I just want to thank you for the validation too, because what you were saying about, I can't tell you how many times I've had not only my own clients, but even this has come up for me where consciously everything is safe. I know I'm safe right? My environment is telling me logically it's safe. I recognize that. But every time I get into a relationship or every time I get into dating and I'm speaking for other people as well, there's something internally that feels unsafe about this situation, about this person, even about myself. Why am I feeling so overwhelmed? What's wrong with me? Am I not able to make good decisions? Why am I picking these types of relationships? And that sense of unsafety can come up so much. And so many times, especially when I'm working with other people, I see the connections from their current circumstances and their feelings of unsafety with their history with their parents. And one thing that I started looking into, which I thought was fascinating was, you know, besides from environment, the epigenetics and how trauma can be passed down from generation to generation. So can we pass trauma down to the next generation? And if we can, how do we stop that from going on to our kids? Yes. Before we even get there, we have to talk about protective responses and how do they develop and their natural responses to dangerous situations or perceived danger. For example, it is very adaptable to be hypervigilant when you're in a situation of abuse. Why? Because that hypervigilance will help you be safe. If you're often thinking about what your abuser is doing, when they're going to show up, what to do when they show up, right? You're planning. That is anxiety, right? That becomes anxiety. But when we think about it in a context of nothing is happening and I'm worrying about it, that's anxiety. But when we're thinking about it in the context of planning, it is safety right? If you grow up in a place of poverty, it is very adaptable to think about where the next meal is coming from. These are adaptation. So what, what we've seen is that our parents and people in our ancestral history had to develop adaptations. And if we go back to the times of colonization, we see that there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of people who lived in hypervigilance. That was survival, right? When we're in survival, connection doesn't matter. If you think about you, when you've been at, the, at your most activated states, in that moment, the last thing on your mind is feeling connected emotionally to anyone, Right? Because you're, you just want to survive. You just want to keep yourself safe. So when we go back to our parents' history, we see that they developed adaptations to survive their environment. 
And because the body is genius, the theory behind epigenetics is, well, if your parent grew up in this environment, then you're more likely to be born in a similar environment. So we have to pass on some of these adaptations so that you are protected from your environment, which is genius, right? It makes so much sense. Now, if your parent lived in a place where they were abused and they had to be hypervigilant, then wouldn't it be helpful for you to be hypervigilant so that you avoided the same thing your parent went through? This is the theory, right? So then a lot of the times what we see is that anxiety. We know that anxiety is passed down. You have more predisposition to anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and other disorders if your parents had them or somebody in your family had them. And this is because the theory is that it's because of these adaptations. What happens is that our DNA is not modified, but what happens to our DNA is that we have tags. And those tags that are attached to our DNA either turn on if we need them or don't turn on if we don't need them. So if you were born from parents who had a lot of anxiety or or were anxious because of what they went through, then when you were born, you had those genetic tags in your DNA but let's say that your parents did a lot of internal work to show up for you differently and you didn't have to be hyper vigilant about your own environment then those tags were there and they might turn on you might be an anxious child you might have anxiety early on but depending on your environment it would mean whether those would be really activated or not whether they would turn on and when and when they would not so, and that's the process of epigenetics. So what I'm hearing is you might be born with some of these genetic predispositions and they might be even in your DNA, but your environment can play a big role on if these genetics turn on or off. So it doesn't necessarily mean even if you have a child that your child is now going to have this, it may turn be turned off depending on the type of environment that you provide for the child or that the child now has um, in their life. So it could look different. So one yeah. thing that you you posted that I found was really interesting that you said, cycles of trauma disguised as culture. This is huge. And I want to talk about this because I myself, I've watched my mom talked about this. I've seen it with you know my own family because my mom comes from a Middle Eastern and Brazilian background. And in that culture and the Middle Eastern side, and I'm this is a blanket statement. I'm not saying every Middle Eastern family is like this, but in, in my family, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma that was connected with, you know, this is just how it is. This is how it's supposed to be. This is how my mom did it. This is how their mom's mom did it. And this is what it is, even though despite the fact that it it caused trauma, where do we distinguish what's known as a normal cultural way of life versus trauma? Where do we draw that line? 
Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader? Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. Yes. I can't tell you exactly where the, the line is drawn because I feel like I'm still figuring that out, but we do know something that's very specific and is abuse. There's like a hard line in abuse. The research tells us, and it doesn't matter what culture you come from, abuse is abuse. Harvard recently published a study about how even children who are spanked, that their brain can act in a similar way to people who were in really abusive situations because it's not the degree of abuse, but the state of your nervous system, that expectation, that lack of safety that it went through. So we know spanking, it's not cultural. Um, hitting abuse, criticism, it's not cultural. So there are very, right, there are very, there are things that are very obvious that are abusive, and that is not cultural. We might have normalized them in a society, but they're not cultural. Any time that we see anyone being abused, and this happens to with oppressed populations and with children, any times human rights are being violated, that is not cultural. When we're talking about cultural, and I think this is where we kind of like are still dancing up, figuring out like where is that line for people? And it might look different across different cultures is the way that we connect to other people. We know that certain cultures are more individualistic and other cultures are more community-based. Family, there's there's a stronger tie to the family. And I will tell you that from my own experience or not my my experience with my family, but just in general, my my experience observing these dynamics, I would say that the middle is the healthiest place to be for anyone, regardless of culture. Meaning if we lean too much into the individualistic, we lose connection and we lose that importance of just like being connected as human beings. And if we go too much onto the other side, we mesh too much with people where we lose our identity entirely. And that's not healthy either. So for me, I, I have a hard time distinguishing that line and I hear this a lot with other people too. And, you know, you either have people that are like, grow up this, you know, gentle parenting is making weak people, but then you have the other side of people that are like, no, you know, any form of abuse is abuse. When I would ever, whenever I've I've tried to bring this up in the past with my mom, like I know she's my mom. I know you're supposed to love your mom and respect your mom. And I do in a sense, but it's difficult because I have those memories of abuse. So there's a lot of, a lot of disassociation for me. Mm 
I dissociate when I go around my mom. Um, I become very numb. And it's really hard to establish that relationship also, too, because there's no sense of acknowledgement that the abuse occurred. It's almost like, were we living in two different worlds? Are you sure? Were we in the same room? Did I experience the same childhood? Because we have very different memories of what happened. And I don't think that she'll ever get to a point where it's like, yes, I acknowledge that this happened and maybe I should have did it differently. And I hear this time and time again from other people that also experience this, this type of childhood. How do we, as the, the kids who may be now adults, if we even want to repair with with our parents, if we want to have some type of relationship, but yet they're not acknowledging that this happened. It's just like, no, this is this normal parenting. How do we just decide, I guess I won't have a relationship with my parents or how can we get, get a relationship when they're not willing to acknowledge that anything happened that was wrong? You know, and I think that's exactly where we have to try to find what works for us. And it's not an easy process, but I will tell people that anytime that there is abuse, it's still ongoing in the relationship. That's not a healthy place to be. And we have to reevaluate or do the work to figure out like, why is it that I still want to be part of an abusive relationship just to maintain connection? If the relationship is no longer abusive and if parents are changed, which honestly, it is very difficult to imagine that concept with people who won't own up to how things were harmful. But it is possible because sometimes parents change with their adult children because they view them with more respect than they did when they were smaller, right? So it is possible that you have a different relationship with them now, but it might be that you don't. So depending on where you're at, but if, if the relationship has changed, then the work is done for us around how would it feel to me to be in this relationship without getting that apology, right? Without getting that healing from them, because I have no power or influence over them and it's painful. But how does this feel for me? And each person will come out with a different answer. For some, it will be, no, I cannot be with someone who hurt me this much and can't acknowledge it. And for other people, it might be, no, I, I can see how their parenting message was very different from the one that we're receiving now. And they have zero awareness and they're a different person now. And I do want to have a relationship with the person they are now. So each of us has to travel their own road and figure out. And the, the best thing to do, though, is understand that it is not healthy to have a response that is consistent with what we went through every time we're around them. That needs to be addressed because otherwise it's just going to feel very triggering any time we're around them. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that I think too, what we have to consider is that our generation has a lot of resources at hand. And I think that this generation is more willing to do things like therapy and seeking help and seeking other resources. Whereas generations before us, it was very taboo. It was um, looked down on. I don't think mental health was as readily available or even understood. And 
it was looked at, especially in certain cultures like Middle Eastern culture, I'm not sure about Hispanic culture. I mean, even on the Brazilian side, like they look at it like, you know, like what, what that that does nothing. You don't that you know, that's you don't need that. That's for people who are like, you know, schizophrenic or or have psychotic tendencies. You don't need something like that. Go outside and get some sun. You know, it's it's it was more taboo. Um, for me, I, I it's weird because I have a lot of memories from my childhood that are missing. It's almost like movie flashes. And I thought I was only it was just me. But the more I started working with other people as I got into the mental health field, I started noticing a lot of my clients who had a history of generational trauma in their family and with their parents also had a lot of disassociating and had, um, you know, memory stuff that was going on as well. So do you find at all with some of your clients that there are disassociating or memories that seem to be missing in their childhood? Have you ever come across that? All the time, all the time, because it's very common for the body to protect itself in that way. If something is painful Sometimes the safest thing for the body to do is dissociate. And we also know that the memory, the brain doesn't store memories in the same way when it's going through traumatic situations because our hypothalamus doesn't have, it's, it's, it's turned off when something traumatic happens, when something really big happens and information doesn't get stored in the same way, doesn't process in the same way all the time. And I love that you mentioned uh, the, the this truth about our parents and is that a lot of them grew up in a very different survival strategy that we did and I tell people a lot of our, our, our parents were cycle breakers in their own way but they did what they could not all of them a lot of them normalized what happened to them a lot of them had a lot of internalized anger that they just projected onto their children what they had them but a lot of parents saw what their parents did or how they grew up and they were like, I don't want this for my children. So I'm going to do something completely different. For example, they might have grown up in extreme poverty and as adults, they want to have financial stability so their children are okay. So I actually did a video on this about how many parents talk about you're not grateful, right? Mm-hmm. And look at all of, all of the things that you have and you're still complaining or what do you have to complain about? It's because in their own way, what they're doing is they are assessing what our life has been to and comparing that to what they went through. So because they went through different things than us and they gave us the things that they needed growing up, they feel like, Hey, like, why are you complaining about this thing? Why, why would you need to go to therapy? I needed to go to therapy. Like my mm -hmm. mom treated me much worse. You know, I lived, I never had anything that I wanted. Why are you complaining? So yeah, our parents had very little self-awareness. They didn't really have a lot of tools for understanding what was happening or to introspect about how their behavior impacted others. And then there's this other thing that I was talking about just the other day about how a lot of parents normalize believing that their parenting only impacted their kids in a positive way. If the child misbehaved, it was the child's fault and a personality trait, right? Oh, they're 
they're, I don't know, I want to say like the word in Spanish, they're troublemakers. That's a personality trait that has nothing to do with my parenting. Mm. they're talkative that's a personality trait that has nothing to do with my parenting they're defiant that has nothing to do with my parenting however if the child did well right in school or if they got a good job or if they grow up to be adults who are functioning well in society although they might be perfectionist or have a lot of trouble (laughs) then it's like it was my discipline the way I disciplined them And we are now in a generation of parents, which, I mean, when we look at gentle parenting, it's nothing more than parents attempt to do authoritative parenting from a place of not knowing how to do it because they didn't grow up with these tools. They were not modeled these things. So when, to me, when we put the spin on gentle parenting is really teaching people to be more attuned to their child's responses in a way that their parents were not attuned to them. That's what we're seeing with gentle parenting, which I understand that sometimes people fall into permissive parenting because they believe that just attuning to their child is what they're supposed to do. But I don't think that's the model in itself. It's just that sometimes as we're learning these things, we might not get it right all the time. But um, we now understand so much the impact of our parenting and our children that we have tilted the opposite way. And now we feel responsible for everything our children do and everything they will be in adulthood. And I tell people we have to be careful because we also have to remember that our children are individuals. They're going to be making their own choices. We are just here to guide them through the process. Try to Solve some of our stuff so it doesn't show up all the time, you know, and learn to repair so we can keep a close connection with them. But they will also become their own person. They might need therapy too. And that's okay. We cannot take that as a, as, as I feel like we are feeling like we're entirely responsible for who our children will become. And sometimes we also forget that they're little humans that have their own per- that are their own person and that it's okay for them to develop their own protective responses that it's okay for them to figure stuff out on their own as their adults so i see those those huge difference between one generation and the next between people feeling completely right like they're they're not at fault or they're not responsible for who their child is in adulthood and then this other generation of parents who feels like everything they do is going to dictate who their their children become I feel like you're you've been in the background of my childhood just watching because that is it's so so much of what I went through it's kind of like if you misbehave I was the bad child. I was the bad teenager. As soon as I became autonomous, meaning that I started to have my own personality and kind of started being more defiant and doing my own thing, that was me. That wasn't bad parenting. That wasn't lack of anything. That was all a personality trait. But when I did the good things, joined the Marine Corps, finished school, became you know this independent person, that was because I parented you in this way. But the bad things that you did has nothing to do with me as a parent, only the good things. And I noticed that trait even in my own 
mother child dynamic. And I feel like that's so true to so many people and validating for a lot of people listening. You, you mentioned gentle parenting, which is big right now. I actually just saw a post not long ago and I commented on it and I got some, I had all these people that were agreeing and a lot of people that were like, you're a terrible therapist, which is why I'm careful of commenting on things. But it was this video of a guy, we don't even know if it was a dad and he, the, the child was in the car. He sprayed water on the window to kind of like joke around the, the child cried. He stopped. He's like, Oh, what, what? And then, you know, it was like, I guess something small, a therapist commented on there and saying, this is abuse. This is trauma. We shouldn't be doing this to our kids. And so on one hand, I understand if this is something that's continuous, like maybe dad or brother or whomever is pranking and, and crossing boundaries and it, it heightens our nervous system after you do that for so, so long. But on the other hand, I look at it too as, well, we just don't have enough context to understand or to label this as a bad parent, as trauma or, you know, we just have to be careful of the content that we're pushing out. But that led me to really start thinking about, you know, does trauma show up in different ways? Can trauma show up when we are maybe joking around or crossing boundaries with our child's body, even if we're doing it in a lighthearted, fun way? I would love to hear your take on that because this seems to be a topic that's controversial among the people who were in the comments. Yes. Yes. What do we know about trauma is the lack of sense of safety. Okay. When a child experiences something with their caregiver and they're often feeling unsafe around this person, we know that that's, that can, has a potential to be traumatic, right? There's a, the loss of sense of safety. When we're joking and playing around with our kids, we might cross boundaries that we're not aware of and create an unintentional scenarios or instances where we break the trust in the relationship. And that is not a bad thing necessarily. It is, is it ideal? No, it's not ideal to be putting ourselves in situations like that. I think a lot of us grew up in situations where roughly was not healthy. We just normalized it as being healthy and appropriate. So sometimes it can be difficult for us to see which is appropriate and is inappropriate. And because we might be judging what we're doing against to what was done to us, we might see it like, oh, this is really light. It's not the big of a deal. However, okay, when children go through discomfort, they learn the process of regulation. Children cannot learn to regulate when their nervous system never experiences discomfort. The process of regulation goes from having this fight-flight activation to coming down from it. The process of trauma is having this fight-flight activation without coming back down to safety. If we, as parents, put our kids, we're joking around, we might create some type of emotion that's not pleasant for the child. And then in that moment, if we're able to recognize it, then we can attune to them and repair. In a, like within the joke, right? We can apologize. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be this 
moment of, oh my God, I'm so sorry I did that to you. It can just be acknowledging that, hey, you know what? Like, I see that I did that. I see that that wasn't well received. I'm sorry. That's not like, I'm not going to do that again. When we put our children in situations like that repeatedly, and then we laugh, we are unintentionally creating all of these situations where our child is encoding that what is happening is okay. So whether they have, whether whether they are encoding that this situation, being put in a situation that I don't like, but it's being minimized as like, it's not a big deal, is okay. Or being in this situation and seeing you laughing and feeling alone in this. You know, I have this experience when I was a child I remember I must have been probably like six years old and I was standing on a rock and, you know, we were at the sea and I fell from the rock and I'm really afraid of water. Maybe that has to do something with it. I don't know, but I fell and I remember I was plying my way, my, my, my fingers in the sand, but I wasn't able to see that I was not really in the water. But I was really afraid in that moment because I thought the sea was, you know, the the waves that were going to take me away. And I felt all of these um, fear. My parents were both standing in front of me, hugging, looking at me, laughing, because to them it was funny, right, that I was there just like clawing my way out of like sand because the water was so far gone. But my experience was very different than their experience. They never repaired. It was a situation that felt very helpless because I didn't really have the resources to know what was happening, right? And those situations will happen. When after that happened, you know, my parents said like, no, like there was no water coming. Nothing was happening, right? Like, you were fine. I didn't feel fine. What I wanted them to do was to run towards me and pick me up. So what I'm saying is a a couple of things here. One, our parents' responses, how how our parents respond to us might be really tied to how their parents responded and what they normalized. And also they might lack the ability to respond appropriately to situations because they just don't see them as threatening when they match them with their experiences. And that's just the reality of it. Second is moments of disconnection or unsafety will happen. And sometimes we will miss them. And sometimes we won't even repair from from them. And sometimes they will come up when we're adults. And like now I, I can bring this up to my mom and she will say, oh, you know what? Like I didn't know that it was like that to you. And I didn't know how to communicate it then. So there was no way of repairing and them understanding but there is now, that will happen. It will happen. Um, so the rule is not to do everything perfectly. Research shows that as long as we are attempting our best, 30% of the time that we're able to attune to our children, we're creating that sense of safety. It is when no one is coming ever, we're alone in our experience, all the time. And that happens consistently, especially when our parents are the source of fear repeatedly. 
that it becomes this trauma response. And then we see those protective mechanisms because either I learn to feel connected and love a person who is constantly harming me, which is not a healthy way to connect, but children do it all the time. Or I become disconnected from the person who's harming me. And then because children oftentimes don't have anyone else to connect to, there's no one, there's no one to connect to. I can't stress enough to parents on how impactful it can be to your child to say sorry or to apologize when you were wrong, to apologize when something impacted your child in a negative way. And of course, you're going to get those people like, oh, we're we're raising weak children now. And you know, you're the parent, you're the adult. But as the parent and as the adult, if I can model to my child that even as your parent, I can apologize to you when I'm wrong and show empathy. I know that my child is going to go into the world with that same mentality of being able to empathize with others and modeling for them that it's okay to admit when you're wrong. It's okay to say, I should have done better in this situation, or I should have been more attuned to what your needs were. What a better way to model that for your kid by being the person who does that. And I think we're finally kind of getting more understandings with that when it comes to gentle parenting. And I love, love, love that. So I just appreciate all of the work that you do with bringing these type of hard conversations to the table because they are uncomfortable and hard, especially for those of us who have generational trauma with our parents. So I have a closing tradition on this show. Um, I have a deck of cards that I like to randomly pull. I don't know what question's going to come out. I just shuffle and see. And um, I have no affiliation with these with this company, by the way. I just really like the, the cards. And for anybody that wants to know what they are, they're called uh, scenario cards. Um, just open dialogue conversations. You can do this with your kids or with whoever. I do not get paid for this, by the way. I just, <laughs> just like, I just, I just like the cards. Okay. Let's see what comes out. All right. So let's see. Ooh. What if you could bring one experience of your last 10 years to your 10 year younger self? Which lesson would you have liked to have learned earlier? Hmm. How it feels to be emotionally connected. I was very disconnected emotionally when I was growing up. I processed a lot of things logically and I didn't understand it. And how amazing it feels to have that emotional connection to be able to hug uh, a person and actually feel good inside. Um, I've learned that in the past, you know, 10 years, that, that's been the center of my work. And it just, it's just so different than what I remember experiencing. 
Well, Yolanda, thank you for coming on the show once again. I know that this is going to impact so many people. I know the first episode was astounding, one of my most downloaded episodes. And I just thank you for continuing to do the work, not only that you do what we see on Instagram and social media, but also the work that you do behind the scenes, because it takes a lot of our personal energy to be healing and to be helping others. And so um humble and grateful for your time and energy and can't wait to see where your future holds and, and how many more people you impact. So thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's been lovely having this conversation with you again. <laughs>